1: Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter.
2: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This podcast contains discussions of child abuse, sexual repression and sexual abuse, suicide, racism, misogyny, PTSD and PTSD symptoms, and spiritual oppression and abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we will be mentioning some of these concepts in a general way, without any graphic detail. If any of these topics or other triggering topics will be mentioned in great detail, we will let you know at the beginning of each individual episode, as well as in the show notes for that episode.
0: Welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast. It is a good day today, and it continues to be a good day every day that Jack Scott is in prison. My name is Gabrielle Cohen, and I am here with my co-host.
2: Hi, I'm Sadie Carpenter, and I am once again asking for Jack Scott to stay in prison forever. But Yes,
0: since- yes, yes. <laughs>
2: Yeah, since forever's not happening, I will take until the end of his sentence.
0: Yeah, he's been trying to get out again, hasn't he? Again. Again. We
2: thought we'd be leaving this behind in 2020. Um, but I, apparently not. In, in late January of 2021, Scott once again petitioned the judge in his case that he receive a compassionate release to care for his parents.
0: Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, I think it's so funny. He just never, like, he never takes no for an answer. That's kind of like that. I guess that's the reason why he's in jail. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I am deeply excited to talk about this because these new developments are extremely entertaining. And when there are new developments, I revel in my duty to bring them all to your attention because this podcast, we are here to talk about Sadie Carpenter's life in the independent fundamental Baptist cult. We seek to warn the good people. In our audience and of the world about the danger that this cult and other cults pose to society as a whole and to promote freedom of mind freedom of thought and freedom of religion all of the freedom for all of the people unless your name is jack Scott then you get no freedom
2: no so this um this new request for compassionate release it it's so interesting to me because this man continues to have the delusion that people who go to federal prison for sex crimes against minors can just ask nicely to be let out early because life has gotten too hard for them
0: you know what he's not wrong though that happens all the time um but just maybe the
2: audacity of this man
0: yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know, maybe in his computer class, he, uh, he'll uh he make a video of himself, like a video montage of himself preaching, and then set it to Viva La Vida by Coldplay, and then send that to the judge, like, in hopes to garner some sympathy.
2: I'm pretty sure somebody um, at one point made a video of him preaching set to Viva La Vida. I don't think it was him, because I think he was in jail by that point.
0: Right, because when we were when we were coming up with like jokes and stuff, I made that joke, and then you were like, "Wait, have you seen the video?" I had not seen the video.
2: Uh, no, they, it's been done.
0: And then you sent me like literally somebody made that video.
2: Yeah, no the the uh, the connection between uh, Scop's general personality and ass- and the story of that song, I think uh, like that's something that people have noticed before. So yeah. Well, anyway.
0: at one point, somebody sent, like, I was on Jewish Twitter, and there was Nazis uh, trolling Jewish Twitter, and they made a video of that, but with Hitler, um, <laughs> and said it to Viva La Vida by Coldplay, which was not great.
2: Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> good play i mean i suppose <laughs> yeah
0: i mean i suppose if you're uh if you're like all about white power then of course your favorite band would be cold play um.
2: Yeah. <laughs> no, um when i when I here i'll, I'll digress into this because i know it's going on to the patreon cut of this yeah. episode um hi patreon we love you um When I was first getting out of the IFB and kind of learning to listen to music, Coldplay was one of the first bands that I discovered that I liked, and then it was the first band that I decided that I didn't like anymore. Because
0: you found, like, spicier – it's like training wheels for good music.
2: Because I found so much better bands. Like, Coldplay was, like, the first band that I got into.
0: (laughs) And Coldplay isn't terrible or anything. It's just, like, their music – I mean, their music doesn't really appeal to me because it's kind of—I don't want to call like—they're very successful and they've got some good songs, but it's very like middle of the road and very like like fine, you know. If it's on, I'm not it's gonna like. It, it's not a. It's inoffensive. It's inoffensive.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, I don't know. Like to me. Because uh, when I was growing up, because my, my parents, you know, in the in the 80s, they were in grad school and medical school, so they did not get access to a lot of like the pop culture, the pop music that was coming out. But the bands that they did like, you know, the the few albums that they were really into, one of them was uh, U2 Joshua Tree. So that was an album that we listened to a lot of growing up. And then, so when Coldplay started to get popular, I'm just like, "This sounds like you too, but like really bland."
2: No, I'm I'm with you. Like, it's like it's like it's like a band that's good, but like
0: they're good at playing music. It's yeah. just I don't like most of the music that they play. Yeah, yeah. The, anyway, like, I, do you remember in like the mid two thousands, like when there were all of these like Coldplay knockoff bands?
2: No, remember that? I, no i'm not old no, i'm not um out of the cult long enough to remember the mid 2000s i i become aware of the world in like 2012
0: what was that one song it was uh something to rely on that one uh, something it was uh i, I think i, I've I, heard I can't it. remember yeah there are all of these songs that would come out in the mid 2000s that you would be like is this cold play and you think <laughs> it was cold play And then you Google the lyrics and find out that it was by like Keen or somebody that was like there are all these bands that were like Coldplay knockoff bands that like sounded exactly like Coldplay, but weren't Coldplay.
2: See, I feel like the most interesting thing about Coldplay is the fact that their singer was married to Gwyneth Paltrow and then she had when they got divorced, they had a conscious uncoupling divorce ceremony. And really? I, think, like, I feel like that's more interesting than anything about the actual band.
0: Well, I remember when Coldplay played the Super Bowl um, and then they got like key- Coldplay was like, let's do some songs and they're playing some Coldplay songs. And then they're like, you know who we should get to like, because Coldplay, they don't have any songs that are like high energy, like party songs or like, you know, songs that you can, you know, get up and like dance to. So they got bruno mars to show up and do uh like uh uh, uh uh uptown funk which was fun
2: i honestly i love bruno mars so much
0: yeah they got bruno mars to show up and do uptown funk which was fun and then they got Beyon, and then, then like beyonce shows up and did formation yeah do you re- okay do you remember that was 2016
2: i do, I do remember that yeah
0: because we're okay so we're recording this like two days after the super bowl so the we just saw the Are we weekend- allowed
2: to use that word on air
0: yeah, we can use it on air as long as we're not putting it in an ad.
2: Oh, OK. okay. Yeah, because
0: you, you always notice that in ads, they're always like they always say, "Uh, get your snacks for the big game, because if you say Super Bowl, then that's like a a, a trademark phrase. But yeah, so it's uh,
2: just in an ad. OK, well, thank you for explaining that. I was wondering about that.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, we could like, you can't not say words like on your show. It's not like we're, but like two days ago, we saw the Super Bowl halftime show with The Weeknd. I don't know if, did you see that? I watched it. I saw part of it. Um, I I saw part of it. And
2: then I saw a really crazy Facebook post from a, fundamentalist christian about how it represents demon worship and i feel like um i'm gonna have to get into that on the show or like in a post or something at some point Yeah, we could
0: do a mini episode where we investigate into a bunch of the uh a, a bunch of like mini claims like we did with that lady i feel uh, like um so, so so
2: ever since the janet jackson thing um Fundies have really been on it about the Super Bowl, and and specifically about how the halftime show is always supposed to be some kind of demonic thing. Um, so there's there's like a lot to get into there.
0: Oh, I remember in like 2013 though, uh, they had the Beyonce halftime show with the Destiny's Child reunion, which was like absolutely lit. It was fucking I cool. Didn't see I that. Loved when I would that. have
2: been at Pensacola Christian at the time.
0: Oh, dude. Oh, you got to like it was fire. It was absolute fire just uh but like there was like this screen grab that somebody did of beyonce in the middle of like singing some word and doing a dance move where her face looked all like fucking distorted and shit because she was like in the middle of saying a word and also her body was moving in like she was like doing a dance move and somebody like just screen like did like a grab of like one frame and they're like beyonce is being possessed like this is like oh my yeah it was um the other thing, no, but I remember um, that in what 2016, right? Uh Beyonce, because uh, this was uh like very much like in the throes of the Black Lives Matter. Like this is, I guess, Black Lives Matter first uh, uh, became a huge thing in 2014, and then it was still popular. You know, I, I don't want to say still popular because it's still going on now. I would say but like it, it was still it,
2: that was back when it was kind of gaining momentum.
0: Yeah, it was still like gaining momentum. But in like 2016, um, it was the very start of like, y- you know, it was this people were talking about all of this stuff because this was when Donald Trump was running for president the first time. And there was all of like this. Yeah, God, I mean, remember that people were just like, oh, that's not going anywhere. And yeah, but Don't so Beyonce. Me. Yeah. So Beyonce comes out and like. Uh, she was at the Super Bowl cuz Coldplay invited her uh to to come play at the Super Bowl with them. So she shows up at the Super Bowl and she did that song Formation. Um do you know that song? Do you know yes, Formation? I do.
2: I yes, I have seen uh Lemonade, right?
0: I see. Yeah, it was okay, it's yeah, the I, last one on Lemonade. Yeah, I've oh. seen
2: I've seen that. Um loved it and was super into the music from that. So yeah.
0: Great music. I didn't know
2: about Formation before. This
0: Yeah, uh, for no, Formation um because I think that song had like just come out like two days earlier or something, or it like might have. No- so it was like a brand, 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 brand new song. And she comes out and, you know, it's that song, you know, she's dressed like very much in like a, a, uh, I think she's dressed like a, a Black Panther, like a Black Panther uniform and all her, her or at least her dress was inspired by that.
2: Yes that was yeah that was what it
0: was that was a whole thing and so beyonce came out and did like and did that and the song is very much like a black empowerment song so you know there's a line in the song that's like uh you might just be a black bill gates in the making um and what what else was it like uh i mean but th- that song is all about like empowerment of black women that's what that song is about um, and she came out and, you know, Beyonce is very unapologetic about, uh, empowerment of black women as, as a message for her music. And so she came out and like, but like, I remember cause I was working at the guitar center in Salem, um, and there was somebody else who was working there, um, and Salem, you know, white people in Salem, Oregon are conservative generally. And there was, I mean, yeah, you know, and there was somebody who I worked with and, she was like, and I was just like at the, in the back, like warehouse section, like uh, doing some organization or something. And I was like singing along with it, like the song, cause it had just come out and I was like, oh, this song is the shit. Like it was such a good song. And she's like, you shouldn't be singing that song. Do you know what it's about? And I'm just like, she's like, that's a bad song because like in the music video for the song, you know, P- uh, Beyonce's also got like the, the, uh, all like a lot of like, Anti police brutality uh, iconography in the music right. Video that's as well. the yeah. one where
2: she like. This is the same album where she like posed on top of a of a police car that's sinking into a lake.
0: That's the music like, video where she fantastic. did it. In. Yeah,
2: fantastic. Like just just gorgeous images. I loved. Sorry, I loved the, yeah. the the visual aspect of that whole thing. Well, the other reason uh, that this caught my eye this week. So so, Scott wrote a, a handwritten letter to the judge about this compassionate release thing that is clearly not going to happen for him uh, um because thank goodness for i think her name is jill costner i think that's the name of the person um but there is a a da who is just the prosecutor just keeping him in jail and just staying on his case and every time he asks the judge to let him out she's right there with a we don't think this should happen and here's why um so never met her, but I think she's great. Um, and she's I'm really sure she's female. got
0: like a, a, a folder full of documents, including the letter that you wrote.
2: Oh, well, she does. Because uh, so legally, that letter that I wrote has to be included in his court docket, which makes me super happy. But I, I believe that the prosecution team against Scop was all female. Uh, if I am reading right based on the names of the people on the team. Um, Okay then. And I think that's just a little bit extra great because this is the man who said he wouldn't take his theology from a woman and was really misogynistic. Anyway, Scott claimed in his most recent letter to the judge that the reason that the prosecutor is resisting his requests for early release is because he did not help her in a case involving a friend who was also imprisoned.
0: So what you're saying is that Jack Scop has more street cred at this time than Takashi Six Nine.
2: That's what he's saying. So apparently, uh, he's not a snitch, just a child molester.
0: So he and Takashi Six Nine do have something in common.
2: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. But so I was reading that though, and I was like, hmm, a friend of Scop's, and I think he said a friend who got sent to prison for 19 years and like what so let
0: me guess was it uh was it his brother-in-law david hiles
2: no because the other can only dream (laughs) right no that's the the other accused child molester in the immediate family is still walking around free uh preying on women from other countries and lying about his wife being dead
0: so i'm assuming that this friend wasn't guilty of any sex crimes
2: No, I mean, as we know, it's pretty unlikely for IFB sex criminals to face any kind of jail time.
0: Nobody ever goes to jail for child abuse or or physical violence either. So I'm assuming that because this investigation, I mean, it must have been pretty serious. Then the IFB, I mean, the IFB wouldn't be involved in drug trafficking. No. They wouldn't be involved in like human trafficking. Probably. Well,
2: other than Scop and his, his uh, <laughs> violations of yeah. the Mann Act, no. <laughs> right.
0: I mean, I guess that he is technically in jail for human trafficking. So
2: what, Yeah, that's actually what he went to jail for was human trafficking.
0: So I'm guessing that this crime was like some sort of like fraud or financial crime.
2: Yeah, you would be correct with that guess. Now, the Scop letter does not name the friend. So I can't be for sure, but I am pretty certain that he would be referring to Tom Kimmel, uh, who was a close associate of Scops, who was sentenced in 2014 to 22 years in prison. So I'm thinking that is close enough. I don't know anybody who was sentenced to exactly 19 years. I'm thinking that Scott maybe just got the numbers wrong um, because I don't think he has Google privileges. (laughs) Uh, Hmm. This guy, Tom Kimmel, was running a Ponzi scheme with the money of ifb church members across the united states so he ended up going to jail with uh, for um conspiracy mail fraud and money laundering
0: so are we about to do a true crime episode that's what i want to know right now
2: i hadn't thought of it that way but yes this is another true crime episode and I love my murder shows, I really do, but I think it's really cool when, when uh, people do true crime that's like financial crimes, and we're going to get to do that. Uh, today we're going to talk about the Ponzi scheme and how it happened, but I also want to use this example to put into context the very specific take on financial management and the specific take on prosperity gospel that the IFB promotes
0: so I am extremely excited for this because I've wanted to talk about prosperity gospel for like a while. And ever since we like brought this specifically up during the first Family of Fundamentalism series, I wanted to talk about this story. We are going to get into it today. So Sadie, who is this man that we are talking about? Who is this man, Tom Kimmel?
2: Tom Kimmel was a church member at First Baptist Church of Hammond, uh, best I can find from Uh, various internet commenter sources. He became a church member in Hammond maybe late 70s or early 80s. And he got this reputation, kind of a a double-sided sword reputation, if you will. So he was known for being knowledgeable about financial things. So some people trusted his supposed financial knowledge and expertise and then other people felt like he was a little bit of a scammer um some people like oh yeah well that guy always wants to sell you shares in a diamond mine or something so like some people were like oh yeah go to Tom Kimmel he'll tell you he'll set you up financially he'll be awesome and then other people were like oh yeah don't buy anything from Tom Kimmel uh and so it looks like he kind of had this two-sided reputation from pretty early on in the 80s interesting so um but he but he was kind of set up on a pedestal as a financial advisor to the church so many ifb church members are fans of dave ramsey but you could think of tom kimmel kind of as the ifb version of dave ramsey he was a financial teacher with lots of fans and followers
0: who's dave ramsey i've never heard of this guy
2: oh my god i forget that you were raised normal (laughs) do you know who robert kiyosaki is like rich dad poor dad
0: no no Oh. Okay, I w- so I was raised Jewish, so my financial education was extremely sound and focused almost entirely on, like, long-term incremental gains to maintain, like, long-term financial security and, like, sensible low-risk investments.
2: So uh, Dave Ramsey or Robert Kiyosaki, and there are tons more, uh, these people fall under a category that I would call financial gurus – they they write – they are really, really similar to, like, self-help gurus like Zig Ziglar. Um, they are – they use a lot of that self-help, like, positive think and, like, very simplistic language that, that a lot this of – like new age
0: spirituality but, like, for money. But
2: for money, exactly. They write books and they then they invent systems. And the idea is that these systems are for working class people – to save money, learn to invest, and elevate themselves above their station in life. So the idea is like that. What they're selling is the idea that anybody can become rich, and that and, and that being rich is not just for the rich people. It's for everybody. Some of their ideas are not terrible. Like some of these guys have like um, rich dad, poor dad, uh, it, it, understanding the difference between uh, owning. A business and working for somebody else in a he he explains that really well in a way that can get you out of a lot of mlm type situations if you know you know if you listen to him to be honest some of these guys ideas are not terrible and some of their ideas are extremely terrible so
0: it's like a little bit of common sense mixed with like a lot of snake oil
2: that's actually a pretty good way to put it.
0: See, I know enough about finances to know that there is a vast ocean of financial knowledge that is completely beyond my comprehension. And that it is best for me to not involve myself in matters that I, you know, I don't understand. I don't know what I'm doing. So, for instance, you didn't see me pumping any money into GameStop.
2: Yeah. The thing about these financial gurus is that they don't make their own money by following their own systems. They actually make their own money by traveling around the country doing seminars and selling CDs of them talking about their systems, like selling books and selling tickets to these seminars. So even though some of them really do have half decent ideas um especially ideas for somebody who is just getting by financially that can help someone learn to discipline their spending uh help somebody get out of debt or or out of a financial hole and into a place of stability where they can learn to actually take care of their money some of their ideas can can really do that for people but there is always a little bit of predatory nature behind these guys in my opinion because They don't actually use their own system to make money. (laughs) They make money selling their personality and selling their system.
0: Okay. So so I know a lot of people who have like a lot of debt and I'll tell like they get pretty desperate. So I can absolutely see somebody taking a chance on some system out of pure desperation, even if they know better. Even if there's like a 9 in 10 chance it's nonsense, there's still that 1 in 10 chance that it'll work and they'll be like, well, it's worth it to me.
2: Yeah, and a lot of these systems are things that would also that would work well for some people and not work well for others. Uh, I remember you asked me in the Duggar episode how men in quiverful groups earn enough money to support so many children. The Dave Ramsey method is focused on having zero debt and then also focuses a lot on real estate investing. And that's something that enables a lot of these families to keep having so many children, like the Duggars.
0: Okay, so it's focused on like maintaining assets and being able to like tap into the equity on those, or is it more based on like owning properties and renting them out to create passive income?
2: I don't know enough of the details of Ramsey's teachings to be that specific. Uh, I think it's about renting out properties for passive income and also buying fixer uppers and then using your 18 children as free labor to do the renovations and then selling the fixer upper house at a huge profit.
0: Okay. So I'm trying to imagine having some crazy fundy dude as my landlord. I mean, I've had some sh- landlords in the past, so like no thanks. Yeah. But-
2: <laughs> um, so I'm going to tie this in though to something that we've mentioned a few times recently on the show. So the concept of if all IFB kids become pastors and missionaries, who fills the offering plates and who pays their salary? There's there's another puzzle piece to understanding that whole concept here. As it became obvious through the years that IFB churches were not going to be able to recruit church members who had high-paying jobs, it was clear that churches were not going to be able to financially sustain themselves if all of their members were working class people whose tithes were not a large amount of money. So we were getting to this point where preachers often had to work a side job to support their family or churches would be subjected to just constant fundraisers and constant pleas to double tithe or triple tithe just to keep the lights on at the church. Mm. The glorification of poverty within the IFB was causing a financial crisis as well as being really tempting for people to leave so that they could have a better life, to leave so that they wouldn't be in poverty. So Tom Kimmel saw this problem, and he didn't believe that God wanted people to be poor. So he said that he wanted to teach other people how to make money and how to gain wealth, and of course, how to be able to give more money to the church.
0: Okay, so did this, like, because this is a a divergent, from this is divergent from um, what the IFB is usually teaching. So, is this going to cause any sort of conflict? Because if the IFB is uh, glorifying poverty, so how does the leadership take to this man coming in to contradict them?
2: So, I wasn't there, so it's hard to say for sure. But it seems to me that Kimmel more found a way around their objections. Like, he found he had a smooth talk. And, and found something, found a, a way to make it make sense for them.
0: Oh, uh, okay. So
2: this is my take, and this is all speculation because I wasn't there. But I think that the IFB glorified poverty because they felt like they had no other choice. They had to make their pastors feel good about having very little and barely being able to provide for their families. And they had to make their members feel good about giving more than 10% of what they made to the church about sacrificing so much financially to put their children in Christian school, about turning down a promotion because they would have had to work on Sunday. So it wasn't a matter of the IFB legitimately hating money or wealth. It was a case of them maybe not seeing another way to keep people under their thumb. So because people were poor as a result of being IFB. The IFB leaned into that, I think, and preached on verses like the love of money is the root of all evil. They, they preached about the man who spent his life stockpiling goods and building a tower to contain all of his luxurious possessions, only to die the day that the tower was completed. That's a New Testament story. Uh, they talked about how people who are poor on earth will be rich in heaven, and that's why I think they added the trappings of material wealth to their descriptions of heaven, Because their people Ah. would never own a sports car on Earth. they described in detail the beautiful sports cars that they wanted to drive down heaven's streets of gold.
0: So they would build you a mansion on Hallelujah Street.
2: Yes. (laughs) I think that this all ties in together. And I think this also ties into the idea that, like, the wealth in heaven is super played up. I think the IFB never really had a religious reason to glorify poverty. I think the IFB has just always appealed more to blue collar working class people who have less money to begin with than other people. And I think that they had to glorify poverty in order to make the amount of work and the amount of giving that they needed from their people make sense.
0: But of course, like eventually the well is going to dry up. So what are they going to do?
2: You can't treat people like walking ATMs for years and years and expect that to just keep working because, like you said, that that money runs out eventually. Yeah. I know of churches that have accidentally emptied the retirement accounts of some of their members.
0: Accidentally?
2: Uh, they, like, they didn't know that they were getting it all. Uh, I also know of IFB churches that did know and have straight up scammed older church members into... Updating their will to leave all of their money to the church, uh I don't even have time to get into that ugly mess, but like I like and that's not a church I ever attended, but I know of an i f b church that straight up scammed their old people into uh to amending their wills
0: that is extremely abusive,
2: yes, it is. And this is why I strongly believe that financial abuse is one category that often falls under the umbrellas of spiritual abuse and church abuse. But when Kimmel came along with a solution, he he, he thought he had a way to keep IFB church members under the thumb of the church while providing them with a better quality of life, something more like American middle class living. And giving these people access to more disposable income, which they could then – give at least 10% of, if not more, to the church, I think the IFB leaders saw this as a blessing because the old ways were not working and it was clearly quickly heading for a crisis.
0: So it seems like this is a bit of a win-win. So the members get to have more money and then the church gets to take more money. So is there a catch here?
2: At first, there doesn't seem to be one. Tom Kimmel based himself out of First Baptist Church of Hammond. Through the 70s, he became known for giving good financial advice, and in the 80s is when he became the IFB Dave Ramsey, and he began to travel to IFB churches around the country to present his methods for financial success. And this is around the same time that the, the church in Hammond was at its peak, Kyle's Anderson was at its peak, Jack Hiles was at his highest popularity, and it seems that Jack Hiles would help him set up these meetings at different churches. And of course, if Hiles recommended a speaker, then churches would be thrilled to have him come. So it, it's a it's a big deal to be endorsed by an IFB pastor, but to have Jack Hiles' endorsement on your teachings—that's really, really valuable.
0: I can assume that it's like the equivalent of being knighted by the queen.
2: I mean, sure, it is a, an honor, but more than that, I want you to think about how it would be a position of security. In a big church like First Baptist Church of Hammond, there's a plumber who's a church member, and anyone who needs plumbing work just calls that guy. And in a church that has, you know, 20,000 members, that plumber wouldn't even have to work for a plumbing company. He could just have his own little mom-and-pop plumbing company That mostly services First Baptist Church members and occasionally, you know, somebody else happens to call them, they can do their work as well. And that guy, he wouldn't ever have to worry about working for someone else. He wouldn't ever have to worry about not owning his own company ever again. As long as he's the the plumber for First Baptist Church of Hammond. It's like being the plumber in a small town. You know, you're always going to have business. You're always going to get by. And then that guy can also hire teenage boys from the church and pay them less than minimum wage because that's the sort of thing that you can get away with extremely easily in the IFB. So this turns into like a really profitable business for the plumber. And he's got ultimate infinite job security unless he makes the pastor mad.
0: So that makes sense, though, because if you want to be successful, like, the strongest way that you can be successful is, like, through building through community. And this just doesn't go – this doesn't just go for, like, IFB stuff. This goes for, like, every discipline and every community. Right. So that's that's interesting. Okay, I never thought of that before. it's like being
2: the guy in a small town. So – yeah. There's there's another church I know of. Um the pastor recommended that members don't go to the only grocery store in town because the store owner had some kind of beef with the pastor and I can't remember what the problem was at this point. But everybody just drove 10 minutes further down the road to go to the next nearest grocery sh- grocery store because they were going to do what their pastor said. Uh Really? Yeah, First Baptist Church of Hammond even has a doctor. Um now that guy is Really? Yeah, he's he's sort of a quack. Um, He's going to have to get his own episode sometime. He is a controversial figure. But yeah, they have their own doctor. So if the pastor recommends something or someone, you as an IFB church member are really expected to go along with it.
0: So if Jack Heil says this is a good guy to teach the congregation about financial literacy, everyone's going to go.
2: Yeah, everyone at First Baptist Church is going to go to his seminar or find him to ask him for advice in person. And if he visits another church in some other state with Heil's support and recommendation, the members at that church are going to go to his seminar and buy into what he says and buy his book and buy his CDs. And he's set.
0: So so what sort of advice is this guy giving out then?
2: So I'll get to some of his specific advice a little bit later. But I want to point out first that It doesn't seem that he was doing anything illegal in the 1980s or the 1990s, at least not anything that he got caught doing. It is worth a note, though, that he was promising investment returns way better than he should have been from pretty much the beginning of his career as a financial expert. So back at the time that a good investment return was 7 or 8%, he would tell people in churches that investments can give you a 15% return. He wasn't like saying like, oh, my investment will give you double the amount that other – he would just inflate. He would just say that, oh, yeah, a good amount to earn on an uninvestment, any investment is 15%. Like,
0: okay, so just like inflate their expectations
2: right. Like like not just of of his particular investment scheme, but like of any investment scheme. when the market was great and people were making fifteen percent ROI, he was out there just telling people that they should get thirty percent ROI on any given investment.
0: Yes, okay, that's interesting because my dad told me that if something seems too good to be true, like if an investment seems too good to be true, it's it like probably is.
2: Uh, I agree. But in these early years, I think that's evidence that he wasn't giving great advice. But I cannot find anything that he was doing that was illegal. So that changed in the early 2000s when Kimmel co-founded a company called Shoreline Acceptance Corporation. And so it, it was a company that had been selling cars uh in North Carolina for a couple years and then he got he got hired as a consultant but he said that that he co-founded it anyway. He would tell people in these church seminars about a company that he knew of that was a practically guaranteed 12% ROI that they could invest in. So people would ask him about it like, "Oh, Brother well I heard you talk about this company that'll give you 12% ROI. What's the name of that company?" and he'd be like, Oh, it's called Sherline Acceptance Corporation. Like without telling them <laughs> that it was his, like that he partially owned the comp or worked for the company.
0: Yeah, so I mean so Sherline Acceptance Corporation, like that sounds like the most nondescript shady shell company that I've ever heard of.
2: So it was a company that provided loans for used cars for high-risk auto buyers in North Carolina.
0: So he's basically loan sharking here. Yes. He's basically like, uh, I can't think of the name. He's basically like Quicken Loansing here.
2: Yes. So he, this company apparently, he claimed that he co-founded it, but I don't think he did. It looks, from what I was able to find, the company was a thing before he came along and then they were almost going out of business. Like, the company was really struggling, and then he came along, and they hired him as basically a PR guy, and then he claimed that he co-founded the company <laughs> and, like, used the investment money from – that he earned through, like, self-promotion and the trust of IFB pastors to prop up this company.
0: Interesting. So,
2: all told, he solicited over $20 million from about 380 individuals.
0: Oh, $20 million.
2: Yeah and he would advise in his seminars this is like this is the really nasty part he would advise $20. in his seminars that people should invest their entire retirement savings in his enterprise and then he would tell them that they would get a great return on their investment
0: 20 million dollars
2: yeah and like he's getting Jesus. people's entire retirements Whew. and if you if
0: they've been saving for years and years and years and years so these are like Oh. A
2: lot of these people were i f b um staff members, which is just even more heartbreaking because we all know that those people don't make anything and i can if if you read the court documents um some of the people who invested it's just pitiful like there are people who invested a few hundred thousand dollars, but there are so many people who invested like twenty thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars, and it just breaks my heart to think about like that could have been all the money somebody had in like their retirement savings and like how great a loss of $10,000 would have been for some of those people yeah
0: like that's if that's all the money that you have in the world and like you're giving it to this guy
2: yeah like oh. that did, it did, it breaks my heart um so so Camel was supported by Hiles and he was even more supported by Scorp uh, and if you remember from the Scop episode, uh, Scop had set himself up and promoted himself as a financial expert. Um, someone who was able to swing the millions of dollars for the new church auditorium and for the missions teams that were so expensive. So yeah. Scop had set himself up to be an expert. So now it's an expert recommending another expert. So Kimmel even grew more in popularity. The other thing is... That per his contract with the Shoreline company, Kimmel earned a 10% commission on any investor that he solicited for the company. So, Kimmel could tell you, hey, I want you to, I think you should invest in this company. You'll get an awesome return on your investment. He's not disclosing to these people that he works for the company he's not disclosing that if if someone invests ten thousand dollars he puts a grand in his pocket right off the top
0: so that 20 million dollars that's two million dollars into kimmel's pocket
2: yes but it gets much much worse kimmel is paying a one percent commission to any pastor who sends him an investor so if you are joe smith and you Pastor First Baptist Church of Ottawa, Kansas, and your members collectively invest five hundred thousand dollars into Kimmel's scheme, which he has not disclosed to your members that he is benefiting from or that he is a part of. Kimmel goes home with forty-five grand, and the pastor goes home with five grand, which is way more than a month's paycheck for Joe Smith, who is the pastor of First Baptist Church in Ottawa, Kansas. It's a huge windfall.
0: Right. Okay, because all these IFB pastors, they're used to being absolutely broke. Exactly.
2: So, of course, the pastors are now incentivized to have Kimmel in because he is, without telling the investors, taking a hefty commission off the top of their investment and paying off the pastor. So the pastor is the person who gets to decide if Kimmel comes to their church and he is being paid off. So, pastors are absolutely literally profiting off of the love and trust of their church members.
0: So, are they like, so do they know that the pastors, do they know that Kimmel is involved in mm-hmm. this company? And they're not telling their church members. Right.
2: Um, now they think it's, now they, you know, trust Kimmel because he's got the rubber stamp of approval from Scott or Hiles or whoever the pastor is at the time. So, the pastor. But is
0: Kimmel telling them not to tell?
2: I guess he must be. I'm not sure on that detail.
0: Because the regular people investing don't know that Kimmel is. And if you're a pastor, you'd be like, oh, Kimmel is involved with this company and he's saying that we should do this and it's endorsed by this. Um, He's giving us like an inside opportunity here.
2: Right. But pastors believe that they're above their people. So they think it's okay to like profit off of their members trust ah. so jack Scott gave kimmel an office on first baptist church of hammond property when he became pastor and he gave him a title and it's a little bit hard to find exactly what his title was um people on the internet think it was something like uh, director of financial counseling or office of pastoral financial counseling or something um you may remember that Scott really pushed counseling that was really his thing um even before he started using counseling as an excuse to abuse minors and also giving people kind of inflated titles was a a, a very Scop thing. But Hmm. Scop would send church members members to Kimmel for financial counseling. So if you're a church member and you go to Jack Scop saying, Pastor, I'm having money problems, Scop will send you to Kimmel knowing that Kimmel would smooth talk them into investing in his company and then that Skop would get the 1% kickback check.
0: So what we've really got going on here is this man is like, essentially this man is going around the country to these churches, looking for people who are financially vulnerable and then taking their money and then giving kickbacks to the pastors who are like serving them up on a silver platter.
2: Right. So it's not clear um, whether all pastors accepted the 1% kickback or not. Some articles I found seem to imply that some of them did not accept that 1% payoff. Um, so I want to make that caveat. But all the same, some of these pastors absolutely purposely offered up their church members for a little bit of financial, personal financial gain. So Kimmel is getting all this money from church members. Sometimes it's all they have in the world. And he is putting it into the Shoreline Acceptance Corp. And that business is not doing as well as expected.
0: So he's promised them 12%. That's the number he's promised them. Yes. So what's the actual ROI that he's getting? Is it like 10%,
2: 8%? I was not able to find that figure. So at first he was paying out the 12% to his original early investors.
0: And this is money that he's making by offering high interest loans to people with bad credit in North Carolina.
2: That's how he intended to make the money.
0: Which is predatory as it is.
2: He, so the business was making some money in the predatory loan business. Um as as you tend to do if you have that kind of a company. But it wasn't making as much as it needed to, especially during the 2008 recession. So you just have to figure if the business was not making 12% ROI, but Kimmel was paying out 12% ROI, like th- that's, that's a pretty obvious mathematical problem. So yeah. yeah, Kimmel and the other board members of the company are either going to have to fess up to their investors about low returns or otherwise they're going to have to turn this thing into a Ponzi scheme where they use the money from newly recruited investors to pay their board members and to keep their lights on and to pay off older investors, creating a company that is catastrophically and usually irreversibly upside down.
0: Yeah. So at this point though, like was the company solvent? Like, could they have paid out everybody's original investment or was the money just too tied up in auto loans that had been defaulted upon?
2: This was another detail I wasn't able to nail down for sure. I'm still learning about how to dig through court records for what I'm looking for. The best information that I could find showed that the company was probably never really 100% solvent. Like maybe for a very brief time in the beginning, like back in 2006, 2007.
0: Right. But like, say you invested a bunch of money in 2006 or 2007, and there's a giant financial crash like we saw in 2008. I'm sure that the people who invested their money would have understood if he had lost like a portion of their investments. So like, If he'd gone up to them and said, look, I invested your money, but I did not foresee this giant financial catastrophe that has affected the whole of the country and the whole of the economy and the whole of the world, here is 80% of your original investment back. I'm sorry. Like People wouldn't have been happy, but they would have understood.
2: Yeah. Or he could have said, here's the financial statistics on our company. We think we can recover in 5 years if you want to leave your investment with us and and you could you know we think you can still make money if you want to let us have your money for 5 more years. But if you don't want to, you can also tap out and get 80% back now. Yeah. Like that would have been another more ethical option, but instead he decided to prey on the people who trusted him and the people who trusted their pastors and just try to get enough new investors and enough new money to reinvigorate the company while misleading his current investors about the financial health of their investments. And then when things got worse, he used new investors' money as capital to pay off old investors, which is the actual exact definition of a Ponzi scheme.
0: So throughout this whole time, he's telling people that their assets are secure, though.
2: Like, yes,
0: is he telling them that they still are making 12 percent?
2: So from what I can see, he was definitely still recruiting new investors with the same promise of 12 percent. And I believe that he was still telling pastors and church members across the country that their investments were secure and growing.
0: And nobody found this to be suspicious.
2: I mean, apparently not. I'm thinking this probably fell under the idea of not questioning your pastor the pastor had recommended this man and in this investment. So IFB people would believe that God was supernaturally caring for their investment because of, because like I obeyed the pastor and put my money here. Therefore God would never let anything go wrong with my investment.
0: But like I was saying early, like when I was told that something is good, is too good to be true. It probably is like, but I guess they probably didn't teach that in the personal finance class at Hiles Anderson College.
2: So you, you wanted to know who is teaching the personal finance class?
0: Yeah. who like Who is teaching this personal finance class? Tom Kimmel. The same guy. The Ponzi <laughs> scheme guy.
2: Yeah. <sighs> <laughs> There's your reaction. I was waiting for that. <laughs> um, so the Ponzi scheme fell apart. In 2011, and then Kimmel was arraigned in 2013, and then he ended up being convicted in 2014. But his arraignment was within a couple months of when Scott was when Scop was arrested, and when his trial started. So I think Kimmel kind of got pushed under the rug because the Scop news was bigger. But Kimmel hmm. was my personal finance teacher in fall of 2011, so he was literally teaching Hiles Anderson College freshman personal finance while his business was falling apart at the seams and it was becoming totally clear that he had lost his investors money
0: so like what was the reaction throughout the ifb towards this guy and like his grift like so was was he like growing unpopular like were people mad that their like were people mad at their pastors for recommending this guy like as a trustworthy guy who lost all of their money
2: I can't tell you from personal experience because get, get this. I didn't know that my personal finance teacher was currently running a Ponzi scheme. I didn't find out about that. Even though people knew that he was running and a nobody Ponzi scheme. I, I didn't find out until after the fact. No.
0: Because there that would have been like would that have been like gossip?
2: Right. I think they were still hoping that he wasn't gonna get arrested. Like, people thought that he, this was somehow still going to work out okay in 2011.
0: But, like, uh, so, like, I have, like, IFP families know this guy by name, right? And, like, I'm sure some people would have, like, known, okay, the jig is up. This guy's a con man. And so say that you've invested a ton of money with this guy and then he loses all your money. Are you going to send your kid to the Bible college where this guy is the personal finance teacher?
2: I mean, okay, so I couldn't find the date that investors actually found out that their money had been lost. So I couldn't tell you if it was in 2011 or maybe 2012 or early 2013. I also feel like Scott's scandal was so all-consuming that unless you or your family lost money with Kimmel, it might not have been as much of a to- conversation topic as Scott's scandal. So I think that's one reason that this took longer to come to light. The other thing is, though, as far as sending kids to Hiles Anderson, I don't know about the 2011 school year, but if you would send your kid back to Hiles Anderson in 2012 and, after Scott did what he did, then I don't think a little Ponzi scheme would bother you very much.
0: I mean, but didn't you decide to go back to Hals Anderson in 2012 after this apocalypse?
2: I did, yes.
0: So are you telling us that you would have been taken in and bled dry by this absolute shyster?
2: Well, considering that Kimmel or the IFB as a whole didn't recommend that the woman, be in charge of the finances unless she was single, I don't think it would have really been an issue whether I wanted to invest in his Ponzi scheme or not.
0: So, like, why do they even have women take personal finance class then? Like, wouldn't her time be better used for another, like, how to please your husband prerequisite?
2: I had to take two of the how to please your husband classes freshman year and only one personal finance class so i think it was still pretty obvious what my priorities needed to be
0: yeah that's what they were
2: um Kimmel said in class that it was permissible for the f- for the wife to do the family finances if the husband couldn't handle the family fa- family finances and if the wife was never the breadwinner or the primary earner but it would not have ever been up to a wife whether or not to make an investment that's not a decision that a woman would have been making within the ifb typically and of course as we discussed before i don't think going back to hiles anderson after the scopocalypse had anything to do with me being gullible i think it had a lot more to do with me having shell shock and just not knowing what to do next
0: okay so i think this is a good time to take a break uh we're gonna take up the offering And then when we come back, we are going to go into this in much
1: greater detail. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites.
2: Hey, it's Sadie. If this is your first time listening to the Leaving Eden podcast, make sure you go back and check out episode one, where we start the whole story. You might also want to check out our cult true crime series, The First Family of Fundamentalism. If you like the show, you can support us by joining our Patreon, where we have extended and uncensored episodes available. You can also join in the discussion in our Facebook group, Eden Exodus. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your worst enemy. (laughs) The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really do appreciate your support. Now, back to the show.
0: Okay, so we are back. We are talking to Sadie Carpenter on how Sadie's personal finance teacher was running a Ponzi scheme with church members' money.
2: I'm sorry. It just sounds so much more ridiculous when you say it.
0: Yeah. No, I like, I must say though, like, this story is ridiculous. I mean, it makes perfect sense that the guy running the Ponzi scheme is also the guy who is teaching these people about personal finance. Like, so, like, to an outsider like me, this is so obviously a scam. But if you're indoctrinated into a cult, like you're going to think that, like, these people are godly people. And so it, like, makes perfect sense that the guy who you're investing your money with is also the guy teaching you how to invest your money because, like, he's God's financial advisor.
2: Right. Because this, he was a friend of Jack Hiles, he was a friend of Jack Scott. And the endorsement of those two men meant everything and should never be questioned.
0: I mean, this is so obviously a scam. Ah.
2: So I was, I was going to ask you, did you have to take personal finance class as a prerequisite in college, like in your freshman year, along with a like I don't know, world history and the science class and like an English grammar and writing class where you have to write a dumb term paper?
0: No. Okay. So we had all of those things in high school, um, because I th- like so the college where I went. I think they sort of assumed that you already knew that sort of stuff when you got there. Like, you know, because this was kids who went who were like in AP classes.
2: Okay, so I don't know if most colleges have personal finance classes, but I think most IFB colleges do require a a freshman year personal finance class. Then again, Hiles Anderson is kind of crazy for prerequisites. They required an entire class about Jack Hiles for freshmen when I started there. Your entire first year, you might get to take a couple classes in your major because the rest was literally just Bible classes and prereqs.
0: And also, like I feel like a lot of the kids who were going to Hiles Anderson would have had like ACE for their grade school education. So knowing that like them knowing how to write properly or them knowing Basic world history is not necessarily a given.
2: Right. So I guess we probably shouldn't get too far down the rabbit hole of HAC academics because there's a lot of this in this episode already. Um, yeah. But there were a lot of people taking remedial math and English their freshman year. A really high percentage of people who went there would have been homeschooled or gone to a small school that, that used ACE curriculum like I did. The personal finance class is where I'm getting my information on what he was teaching people. So I never went to one of his church seminars, so I just kind of assume that what he was teaching in church seminars was similar to what he taught in personal finance class in college.
0: So in what way does a personal finance class from Tom Kimmel prepare you to buy into a Ponzi scheme (laughs) run by Tom Kimmel?
2: (laughs) Hmm, I wonder.
0: Set him up and knock him down. I
2: know. So uh, I do still have my notes from half of this personal finance class. So I can tell you quite a bit about what was said here.
0: I am intrigued.
2: So the class started out the way that a lot of Hiles Anderson classes start out. So the first, it looks like the first day we learned some general Bible thoughts and some sexist marriage ideas.
0: So did these general Bible thoughts include the parable of the talents?
2: Actually no. I'm I'm sure he must have gotten to that eventually, but I'm not seeing it in the first page of my notes. The first note that I have is that the average person handles money 14 times a day, but handles the Bible once a week. Which is what you need to know so you can do your finances. Hmm. Uh, And then we move right on to the marriage stuff because the second note that I have is the wife doing the finances is fine, but trouble comes when she carries the burden of the finances or making money.
0: This is like some just – I mean that first one though, the average person handles money for – it's like some Reader's Digest like –
2: Yeah. You (laughs) know?
0: So – like, I mean, that's – but that's – this is, like, about what I expected. But as far as, like, financial literacy, what are the main ideas that they are, like, presenting to you? What are the main ideas that they wanted to main teach you? Main
2: ideas. Uh, okay. So this is something he did spend a lot of time on. Um, according to a recent survey, a baby boomer who makes over $50,000 a year will need $1 million to maintain their current lifestyle at retirement. Those who are in their 20s and 30s now will need $2 million. Learn to do without now so that you can save for retirement.
0: Okay. I mean, that's not unreasonable, though. <laughs> but also, who in the IFB is making $50,000 a year?
2: I think I think pastors of larger churches maybe make that much. I'm really not sure. I know it's a, a uniquely American thing to keep your salary vague or to have your salary be a big secret, but – in my experience pastors tend to even be more secretive about that kind of thing. I think it's kind of a lose-lose situation to be honest, like either the pastor is embarrassed about how little he makes or he doesn't want people to know how much he makes because he makes more than he should. And yeah. like no matter what figure he says, somebody's going to criticize it. So I think that's why pastors are like super secretive about it.
0: Yeah, but like as a young adult, like as a freshman in college, I'm sure that like a million dollars or million would have seemed like an impossibly vast sum of money.
2: So you know how we have all these graphics now that that get passed around on Facebook that use visual metaphors to compare the difference between a million and a billion? Yeah. It's usually this is a meme being shared from a Facebook page and the title of the Facebook page is something about eat the rich or like Jeff Bezos or whatever. The point of these graphics is that we don't really conceptualize a billion very well because it's such a large number.
0: Yeah, but as far as like a million goes, like if you start working more and more professional jobs, like a million dollars seems like a less and less impossibly vast sum of money. Like I'm sure that if you're in the IFB and you're earning 20, maybe $25,000 a year and trying to feed your family on that, you won't ever see that large of a sum of money all in one place because it all goes away every month and you never save.
2: Right. And I think, I think you're dead on because as you grow up, you know, people who have like that kind of money, like they've been in a career for years. And, you know, you've met people whose house is worth nearly a million dollars. And a million seems like a real tangible amount of money. Like it's still a lot of money. But that is a real amount of money that people that I know in real life can have. Uh, I definitely did not have that experience or that kind of understanding at the point that I was hearing this, it was, it was a different world.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'm living in Portland, Oregon, Portland, Oregon is a, is a town or is a city where there are generally high housing prices as far as, you know, property values. Yeah. So like in the neighborhood where I grew up in, uh, in Northeast Portland uh, houses are easily worth a million dollars. And now in 2020, some of them are going to be worth $2 million. So like to me, like it doesn't seem insane that somebody could have that kind of money, and they wouldn't—they'd be a regular person, not a plutocrat.
2: Right, normal people in real life can have a million dollars and and not be living in some kind of diamond encrusted mansion. Um, yeah. And for the record, I am all about the idea that people should not be multi billionaires uh, above a certain amount. People should have to help out others, and there should be a limit on personal wealth. But we're talking. In or near the amount of a billion dollars, uh, one million dollars or a few million dollars is not even in the same universe as what I'm envisioning when I feel like people shouldn't be that rich. Yeah. But back to, the, back to my notes, though, from this personal finance class, Kimmel taught that the end result of money troubles that are not solved is uh, – this is a quote from my notes <laughs> – Drug use, alcoholism, death, suicide, diverse, divorce, <laughs> murder, and abandonment. Which is interesting because he didn't bring up prison as one of the consequences of money troubles that aren't solved.
0: <laughs> so what do we have? We have so drug use.
2: Alcoholism. Alcohol- death, suicide, divorce, murder, and abandonment.
0: Oh, like, wait, so rich people can't be alcoholics or addicted to drugs
2: uh apparently because those are the things that result from money troubles that are not solved okay but not prison. Well, okay <laughs> that's the one They're he forgot okay.
0: i guess the, the you know they can't lock you up for losing all of your own money but they can lock you up for losing all of somebody else's money
2: <laughs> so one of the very next notes that i have though is it says don't be in debt and don't owe other people anything <laughs>
0: So this is – but, like, this is not dissimilar to what I was taught. Like, because, you know, I mean, I was taught there's very few things that you should go into personal debt for, which are going to be a house, a car, and a college education.
2: I mean, sure. Like, the idea of of not just sitting around, you know, paying massive amounts of interest on a credit card is a financially sound idea. Yeah. Um. No, there definitely is. Of course, there's such a thing as positive debt, and often that does mean real estate. Uh, But I am pretty damn sure that owing other people $16 million that you grifted and then lost does not count as positive debt.
0: Okay. So apart from him not really going by his own teachings, what other things is uh, Tom Kimmel doing in this class?
2: Honestly, just not much. I have my notes for up to the midterm, and we talk about uh, Psalm 1 as it relates to prosperity. We talk about asking your pastor for counsel on financial decisions. Uh, there's quite a long section of notes about what constitutes a scorner.
0: What is a scorner?
2: Um, a scorner – well, you could have asked me when I had my notes in my hand. <laughs> uh, I believe a scorner is somebody – if I'm remembering correctly, a scorner is someone – who has good reason to know the truth but denies the truth. Like a scorner is somebody who has had access to doing things God's way but has chosen to not do things God's way. Uh,
0: So like Tom Kimmel?
2: (laughs) Yes. As opposed to somebody who doesn't know what God's way is, who is like less culpable if they don't do things God's way because they don't know it's God's way.
1: I
0: I find it so – Bizarre that they had Bible verses in your personal finance class.
2: It was most of the class, dude. It was literally most of the class. Um in my high school personal finance class, I at least had to fill out a tax form. and like I had to learn about interest rates and I had to learn about different types of retirement plans. like it was basic, but it at least I learned how to fill out a tax form. yeah. I, the Kimmel's class is mostly bible quotations and then there's like a little bit of greek and hebrew in there
0: oh did they think that knowing hebrew will make you good with money
2: <laughs> <laughs> is that a joke that you can make that i can't <laughs> yeah okay i hope you had fun with it so apparently you just have to know one word of hebrew to be good with money so it's uh
0: what word's that I, i'm curious I don't know
2: how to say it it's t-s-a-l-a-c-h
0: so it's salah, it means so no salah. You know,
2: I can't do that. Salah, it's not my fault because I had braces.
0: You can't get into heaven if you can't go.
2: Uh, is that literally a shibboleth? <laughs> um, no, I guess I'm not going to heaven because I can't do it. Um, no, so uh, the definition we were given, and you can tell me if this is right, I guess. Uh, it means to prosper, to advance, to make progress, succeed, profitable, to bring to successful conclusion, to bring prosperity.
0: Okay. But is he teaching you like about what is a good investment and what's a bad investment? Like, Is he no. telling you, okay, putting your money in a mutual fund is going to provide more stable growth than buying and selling individual stocks?
2: So I only seem to have my notes up to the midterm. So- I cannot claim that this is 100% sure, but I cannot find a word of that kind of, like, actual financial advice. It's literally just, like, Bible opinion, tithe, and then a little bit of prosperity gospel, like, sprinkled on top.
0: So, I mean, that brings me to something that we mentioned earlier, though, because you said that, like, it was talked about. So, like, I want to talk about the parable of the talents, Um Maybe they didn't talk about that in like this first half of the semester. But you mentioned that they talked about it later in the class after your midterm. Yeah,
2: I, I, I'm pretty sure he did. Yeah.
0: So um, and this is a Bible story that I am actually familiar with. And it is from the sequels, uh, right? Yes. It's from the sequels. So in um, so the same amount of money in the story, the same amount of money is given to three people. One of them hides it away. One invests it for a modest return and the third invests it for a large return and the moral of the story is that the one who hides it away is bad the one who has the biggest roi is best um right it, it, and i par- am i paraphrasing that story correctly
2: uh yeah i think one guy hides it away one doubles his money and i think the other one makes like 10 times or five times his money if i remember correctly
0: so okay so the idea is that the man who makes the most from investing someone else's money is the most blessed.
2: Right. Um, so it's uh, the, the man who gave them the money. He was displeased with the man who took no risk. He was pleased with the one who made some money, but he was most pleased with the man who made the most money.
0: I mean, this makes perfect sense. But like also like a 10 times or like a five times like ROI seems a bit absurd of like an expectation to me.
2: With this being a parable, I don't think most Christians would expect a literal thousand percent return. Uh, I think most of us would consider this to be poetic language. So uh, ten times doesn't literally mean I gave you a hundred dollars and you gave me a thousand back. It just means that, like, he had a great return on his investment.
0: I mean, I thought you guys were biblical literalists, though.
2: Okay, what you guys though? <laughs> like the IFB, not you, not you anymore. The IFB are, but this is a parable, so it depends on who you ask whether or not the story actually happened. Um, but they, you're right that they would still take it literally that God intended to say ten times ROI. Um, it the, where where people would differ as if that applies to real life or not. But you were asking if the parable of the talents was mentioned in this personal finance class, um, and I don't, I don't see it coming up before midterm, so I don't know if we did or not.
0: Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm. I don't know. I'm thinking here, like whether or not this class actually taught you, like, okay. Sorry. Okay. Okay. But like the main thing that I'm getting at here is whether or not this class actually taught you like what is a good investment? What is a stable investment? Like, I know you guys are supposed to tie like 10% of your income to the church, but is there anything in there that's like, okay, when you have money saved, you should look for long term growth for uh, retirement? Or is there anything that's like, you know, I don't know, would suggest that a 12% ROI would be suspicious?
2: It's not in my notes before midterm. If I was taught it, I sure don't remember it. Um, here's the deal. I cannot figure out why would I have thrown away my notes from only half the class but kept the other half of my notes? Like, why in the last... Uh, 10 years, since I was a freshman at Hiles Anderson College, ouch, that hurts, Uh, did Mm. not realize until just this moment that it's been 10 years, Um, because now I feel old. Why over the last 10 years, though, would I have saved my notes from before the midterm but thrown away my notes from after the midterm?
0: Because there wasn't anything in them?
2: I mean, I'm guessing, I think what actually happened here is that I just didn't take notes after the midterm. Like, I think what must have happened is that the midterm was so easy that I just didn't feel like I would need notes for the second half of the class.
0: Right. Okay. Because you get to college and you're like, I'm going to be a really studious uh, student. I'm going to be the best student there is.
2: You got all your highlighters. Yep.
0: (laughs) Got all your highlighters, got your three ring binder. You're like, I'm going to take all of the notes in every class so I'll know exactly what to go back and look at. And then after the midterm, you're like, that that class is a cakewalk i'm right. not gonna bother which was me on like the first day of class in every class which uh had varied results
1: <laughs> um yeah i, I would
0: suggest to anyone who is uh, planning on going to college soon uh try to be somewhere in the middle of that do better than i did but not as well as she did because she was a nerd uh Thanks. And you don't want to be yeah <laughs> Nobody cares about your GPA in college. They just care about whether or not you got the degree.
2: I, I still had to wear my retainer during the day when I went to college. So oh, fun. Oh yeah, it was it was great. Um, yeah. No, to answer your question though, I do not remember being taught any actual financial advice, other than save for retirement, tie the lot to your church, and don't have any debt.
0: So hypothetically speaking, okay, so. At the age of 18, 19, 20, when you were still sold out to the IFB and you'd taken this personal finance class from this teacher and then he came around to your church and said, uh, maybe you have like, so maybe you have a little bit of money put away. He comes around uh, to your church and says, promises you 8, 10, 12% ROI. Would you have like done it or would you have been suspicious?
2: I think if I had had any way to put away money. I would have definitely wanted to invest in Kimmel's scheme. I would have had no idea that it was suspicious.
0: Yeah. See, that's what I'm getting at. Cause see, this is another issue that we talked about with Hiles Anderson education is that not only does it fail to meet the educational requirements of any like outside anywhere outside of the IFB, like where you are expected, like the IFB you're expected to go into ministry and like, that's all the only thing that it can possibly prepare you for. Like, And we see this because there's such a lack, there's no accreditations. But like we see, like this education system, like we saw with Hiles Anderson, completely failing to teach people basic life skills that they will need to function in everyday life. Like this absolute lack of preparation is intentional. So the same people are going to be the people who are like just blinded and literally the exact same people who he's taking advantage of. He's just like trying to keep these people as docile as possible so that he can fleece them for money later for his Ponzi scheme.
2: I think the idea of bread and circuses is, is very prevalent within IFB leadership and, and the, the idea of like pacifying or mollifying a group of people so that they don't think or they don't have time to think or they don't have reason to think about the ways they're being taken advantage of. And another factor of this is how helpless it makes women. So as an 18, 19, 20 year old, I was not allowed to work while I was in college because of the Jericho program. So I depended on Christmas gifts and birthday presents and and like doing odd jobs for church members, whatever, to buy myself coffee and supplement the Hiles Anderson dining hall food. Like I had very little money available.
0: Right. Because if you worked an on-campus job, they didn't have to pay you. It was all free labor. Like in in real school, they'd hire students to work in the dining hall, but then they'd have to pay them.
2: Right. And that's the Jericho program. It's like that. It's like work scholarship, except for- You ended up making way below minimum wage, and you also had to abide by ridiculous rules that controlled you right down to what time you went to bed and what time you woke up.
0: And if you didn't finish your education at Hiles Anderson, all of that would have been for nothing. Like, it would have been a balloon payment almost.
2: Right. And I was taught the term balloon payment in my high school personal finance class, but, but not at Hiles Anderson. So I went to Hiles Anderson thinking there was no way I wouldn't finish my degree. But I am sure that there were many people who went there and just didn't know what a balloon payment was to begin with. Beyond that, though, I have more to say about how this specifically disadvantages women.
0: Yeah, go on about that.
2: So uh, I'm going to.
0: (laughs) Yeah, please do. So
2: I could have worked over the summers and made a little bit of money for myself. Um, Because when you go to Hiles Anderson, it is a private college, so you do not get student loans. Um, or grants, or anything. You're not eligible for any of that, so you're paying it all out of pocket. And I could have worked over the summers and and built up a little bit of cash for myself and then had that to spend during the school year, but I didn't, and there were a couple of reasons why. First, I was so ill and so tired from a year at Hiles Anderson that I didn't feel mentally or physically capable of trying to go get a summer job. I... Have so, uh, at the time we are recording this, I am 35 weeks pregnant, almost 36 weeks. I am in the tail end of a literal marathon, and I am just now feeling as tired and as worn down and as worn out and as exhausted as I did uh, as a Hiles Anderson College student wow so like you wouldn't expect me to go out and get a job now like in late stage pregnancy like i was i was this tired i swear i this is the point and i've just hit that point of exhaustion over the last couple days where okay this is as bad as it was when i was at Hiles Anderson,
0: yeah. Everybody listening to this podcast who has who has been pregnant is like Jesus Christ. Yeah, <laughs> like they know they know what you're talking about here, and they're like, "Oh, that's how bad it was," because yes. you've you've dealt with both. <laughs>
2: Right. And I've just been waiting the entire, the, honestly, the entire pregnancy. I was like, oh, I wonder when I'll get to that point.
0: Yeah. Cause that's been so confusing to me because I've been like, are you good to, do you want to keep recording? Like, do you want to keep doing these episodes? We can, t-, and you're like, no, I'm good. I'm good. And I'm like, really? Okay.
2: No, like, I'm, like, I'm fine. And I am just now to the point where I'm like, okay, this is how tired I was.
0: And you still managed to get like A's in all your classes.
2: Most. Yeah. There are a few. There are a few that I just blew off because I didn't care about. Um, but yeah. So anyway, I did not feel physically capable of trying to get a summer job because I felt like I needed to rest from being at Hiles Anderson to begin with, and my mental health was so bad from being at Hiles Anderson <laughs> that I didn't feel like I was capable of working. But I was also so completely terrified of worldly people and the dangers for a Christian young woman out in a worldly job that I really wanted to avoid having a summer job because I felt like workplaces are literally, like I thought that I was going to get offered hard drugs in a workplace. Really? Yeah. Like I literally thought I'd be working for a Walmart and then like my coworkers would be like, Hey, we're going to go do heroin on our break. Do you want to come with us? (laughs) I also thought that like every man who was not IFB was like a potential predator because I had been taught like, oh, you got to cover your knees because otherwise if your knees are out and a man assaults you, then it's your fault for having your knees showing.
0: Little did they tell you that all of the men in the IF, not all of the men, that many of the men in the IFB are definitely predators.
2: It's that meme where he takes off the mask and it's like himself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but. But yeah, so I was terrified. Like I couldn't, I didn't feel like I could go get a summer job because I was scared. So even if Kimmel did come to my church, I would not have had any money to invest in his scheme. But even if I did, like there, I knew girls who did have jobs. I knew girls who, um, you know, who their family owned, the, the dad owned a construction company and, and gave her a job doing some of the accounting or, Doing some, you know, doing some secretarial or like office work over the summer and would make money doing that or whatever. And I knew IFB kids who, who worked fast food or whatever. It just, I felt like I couldn't handle it, but I knew people who did. Anyway, even if I did have some money to my name, the minute that a woman is married within the IFB, all of her assets effectively belong to her husband. So. If I had had a few thousand dollars in savings and I had married within the IFB, it wouldn't have mattered because the next day my husband could have taken that money and did whatever he wanted with it. And I would have had very little say in the matter.
0: Yeah, he could have taken your savings and uh, just invested them with Kimmel. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So an earlier episode, um, you said something along the lines of the IFB is a cult which exploits its members physically, mentally, emotionally, financially. Um. And this story, like, this is what we were talking about here uh, when we say financial, because, like, today it's, you know, it's very serious to me because it goes to show not just, like, the results of people being exploited financially. Like, for instance, you know, pastors and their families living in poverty, people getting their savings drained by a con man, you know, being expected to work long hours without pay, but... Here, like, we also look at the extreme way in which this group has to function. In order to cultivate like a brainwashed group of people that would be so exploitable to this level, like you said, so you have to brainwash people into like them being afraid and thinking that they're not allowed to pursue like lucrative or even like financially stable professions. You have to brainwash them into believing that like rich and poor that's decided by God and you have to like brainwash them to remove any semblance of information that might clue them into the fact that they're being exploited.
2: I think what you're seeing here is that the, the older generation, the people who became IFB as adults, maybe in the eighties or the nineties, those people were being told that the pastor was all knowing that the pastor should make their financial decisions and they were exploited in that manner. With the younger generation, with people born into the IFB, they were told the same thing. But they were often kept in the dark about finances and they were taught almost nothing. So that made them even more dependent on whatever their pastor said when they were making any kind of financial decision. I did want to clear up uh, just how stringent these tithing requirements were. So you were supposed to tithe 10% of your gross pay that's before taxes. And then on top of that, you were supposed to give an offering of at least 5%, but 10% was recommended. And then you were also supposed to pledge a certain dollar amount per month to missions. So they say tithe is 10%, but you really end up giving more like 20 to 25%. Mm-hmm. So the really messed up part is that if you became IFB and you started tithing, you were told – so you're told – That God will bless you financially once you've started tithing. And like God will never bless you financially if you don't tithe. So you have to do this. Um, Otherwise, God is going to punish you financially horribly. So but you're told if you join the IFB and you start tithing that then you owe God back tithe for everything you have ever earned throughout your entire life. So you were actually expected to estimate your earnings for however long you had been in the workforce and then take 10% of that and pay it off in payments to the church even if it took you years to pay that off.
0: And they wonder why it's so difficult to get like doctors and lawyers and business managers and like web developers to join the IFP. Like imagine making say you're a lawyer. You're making $250,000 a year. You you know, you've done well for yourself. And you made that for 10 years and then you join this church and they tell you, oh, you owe us a debt of two hundred and fifty thousand dollars and you like to a church you just joined. Like there is no way that anybody is doing that. Plus, you have to keep paying them like twenty five thousand dollars a year on top of this. So.
2: Right. Like who is going to take that seriously? No one no one and and it was pretty rare that anyone took this seriously but i know that pastors really preached it as if it was 100% what god required of you
0: of course they did because they they're like okay we are so broke right now we need money we need new members let's see we got a new member all oh, let's get them to give us all of their money somebody new joins give that give us all your money
2: so that you've this- ever made Yeah, and this is where I think this is going to get a little bit darker. So uh, FYI, the IFB makes children tithe on their allowance and tithe on their Christmas and birthday money or like any money that they make doing chores or whatever. So the Bible says you have to tithe on all of your increase, which means anything you get that you didn't have before. So it applies to gifts as well. So you have IFB kids being guilted into giving 10% of all their cash, but not only that, you have to estimate the value of your Christmas presents and then give 10% of that. So if you get $200 worth of Christmas presents, but only $10 of cash for Christmas, you're now $10 in debt to God. And you, as a child who has no way of getting their hands on $10 because $10 in your 10 year old brain is like $200 to a grown adult person. You have to pay that $10 back and you have to pay it back with interest. Now I don't recall whether with God interest. Has- <laughs>
0: yes. Jesus. And I- is, is Jesus like waiting outside in the car park <laughs> with like a, a tire iron that's like saying, I'm going to break your kneecaps, you know,
2: so I don't recall if God has a s-
0: That's a nice bicycle with training wheels you've got there. It's a shame if anybody would run <laughs> over it with their car.
2: Um so I don't remember if God has an interest rate <laughs> or if you're just expected to like do whatever you feel is appropriate for interest. Um I don't remember if God has a set interest rate and I wish I did. Um but, but you've ended up with, like, God. little children in debt to God and, like, feeling guilty about it.
0: God is loan sharking these children when they get Christmas <laughs> presents.
2: Yeah. Well, as a kid, I was Jesus constantly Christ. behind on tithe, and I felt terrible about it. And I couldn't, like – so if I was $10 behind on tithe, I would keep little – I would literally keep, like, bank ledgers, like IOUs to my, for myself. What? Yeah, I would keep it written down so that I could keep track of how much money I was in debt to God.
0: So, like, when they do the altar call, right? You you're like, And you're, like, a little kid. You're, like, 8, 10 years old. You're getting the altar call. You're going to go down to the altar and, like, cry about how in debt you are to God. Like, how much money you owe him as, like, a 10-year-old.
2: Right. But also, I believe actually, that if— Yes.
0: Like, that's a thing you actually did? Yes. Jesus f- in Christ, dude. What the hell?
2: So, um, so, uh... What? This is why I have a hard time discussing finances now.
0: Well, no, you're getting uh, your accounting degree now.
2: Yeah, so. but this is why, like, I struggle, like, I, I know money is a hard topic to talk about for a lot of, of couples, um, but this is why I get horrible anxiety about literally talking about, like, fam- family finances with my husband. Like, and or, like...
0: In like even a reasonable manner when it's even not like it's, even yeah. it's
2: just like hey I'm gonna move a hundred bucks from this account to that account and here's why and he's like okay we got the hundred bucks don't worry about it like even that gives me anxiety wow because I spent my entire childhood being in debt to God here's the really really f- dark part though oh tell me remember how God will not bless you if you don't if you're not caught up on tithe. So I felt like so my and my family was poor growing up, like poor, poor.
0: Right, your dad's an IFB pastor, so you're not right. making. Right, my dad's an
2: IFB re- a pastor during the Great Recession. Oof. Um, so I thought that if my family had financial trouble, that it was my fault because I was ten bucks in debt to God on my tithe.
0: Wow.
2: So like, if I heard overheard my parents saying like. Uh, You know, oh, well, we, you know, guess we're eating a lot of ramen this month or whatever. I thought it was my fault because I owed God 10 bucks. What? Yeah. That's. So that is the the up uh, consequences of the teaching on tithe. Like, this is what happens when you live through that as an IFB child.
0: Also, though, like, so say you're an IFB house and you're getting like allowance money. Yeah. but the allowance money that you're getting is also like is is money that your dad has already paid tithe on?
2: Well right. it's like taxes. Like you have to pay income tax and then also sales tax, but your employers had to play pay employment tax on you before you got paid your income, which you got taxed income tax on. Uh, and then you know, when you spend that money, you got to pay sales tax unless you live in Oregon. And then when you die, your inheritors might still have to pay estate tax to get the money that you already paid tax on.
0: Okay. But this like comparison to like, this is um, something I'm glad you brought up because IFBs tend to be pretty far out there conservative. So, I mean, it wouldn't be uncommon for one of them to say taxation is theft in like relation to the government raising taxes or something, or like a new local bond measure or something. But like these people will willingly give like 10, 20, 25% of their take home pay to the church Even if it means that they can't pay for basic expenses, like new tires for their car, or like keeping the lights on.
2: Actually, Jesus said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. So IFB people see paying taxes as their responsibility. So you're allowed to complain about it, but you're not supposed to shirk that responsibility. Which is a little funny because IFB people get in trouble for tax evasion literally all the time.
0: But, like, if you're flat broke, if you're making as little money as IFBs make, you know, chances are the amount of income taxes that you got to pay is pretty low anyway.
2: Yeah. And also consider that IFB people also tend to have quite a few children. Um, I think most people get money back on their income tax because of the child tax credit. Hmm. Um, But then again, just about every year, the church will challenge its members to give their tax refund check to the church. And then if there's a government stimulus, you can you could bet money on the fact that a good percentage of IFB preachers are telling their congregation that they should be giving the whole stimulus check to the church.
0: Oh, I mean, yeah. but it makes perfect sense to me that the IFB would get in trouble for tax evasion, though, because like, I mean, if you're not able to keep the lights on in your house, how are you going to pay taxes to the government?
2: I don't think it's the rank and file doing the tax evasion most of the time, actually. I think... Church members and small time pastors are paying their tax or like federal tax withholding like most of us do, and they just end up getting money back because all of that tithe is a tax write-off because it's a donation to a nonprofit. and then also they probably have several kids. I think it's some of the pastors and some evangelists and that kind of people that are doing the tax evasion. Hmm. Okay, so remember Jack Hiles? We talked about how he claimed to only make 18000 a year. But he somehow had money to buy Jenny Nischik, his secretary, uh, fur coats, and then he was given money for designer suits and lots of pairs of shoes and like given all these things. And we talked about how it was completely unclear who owned Hiles Publications. And then when he died, Hiles Publications was worth money as a company, but who was it left to? Like, the church, I think, but it also might have been the Hiles estate. I'm still not sure who owns Hiles Publications. I think it's the church but i'm pretty sure hiles owned it when he died anyway there was supposedly 10 million dollars cash left to the church from somewhere in the hiles estate and i don't think you end up with 10 million cash if you make 18k a year i don't yet have my accounting degree but i can tell you there's something odd going on here when there's a $10 million estate from a man who supposedly made 18000 a year.
0: I mean, that's pretty egregious, though, because even by IFB standards of, of sketchy double dealing, I think, like, I can't help but think that, like, you know, buy the visiting pastor a new suit is a way to get a bunch of new clothes and have that be written off as, like, not taxable. You know, like, and reciprocate. So, like, if he visits somewhere or if someone, you know, visits his church as a visiting pastor, like,
2: yeah, like, you you get all these new clothes and, like, yeah. Armani suits and stuff.
0: Yeah, I mean, we've gotten a bit off track here. But, like, one thing that I want to say is that before we wrap this episode up, um, I'm going to take our listeners back a few episodes to when we were talking about music and we were talking about this woman who was named Fanny Crosby. Fanny Crosby was a devoted Christian who was a musician who wrote many of the hymns that are popular in the IFB. And we talked about how this woman... Uh, This woman who was blind, this woman's life was glorified to an insane degree because she lived in poverty because she was destitute. Like she is held up as a model Christian and any IFBs would do well to follow in her footsteps. But I mean, I'm not going to pretend that I don't enjoy the finer things in life. I am a man who has what you would call expensive taste, you know, in clothes, shoes, cars, watches, alcohol, cigars. But, of course, I can't always indulge in these things when I want to because so many of them are cost prohibitive. But I can understand somebody saying, oh, you should go without these things for yourself because you need because others need it more. I can understand that. But telling somebody that they need to go without basic needs taken care of, food, shelter, clean water, paying their lighting bill, and medical care, like – because the church needs money because like what you're saying, you're saying God needs money and your unwillingness to do without could be one of the things standing in the way of God's message, reaching others and saving their souls eternally, like forever. That is predatory. Like you could die of a preventable condition because of that money you could have used to pay for your health care, or, you know, they went to the church instead. Like, I guess at least you're in heaven now and you're a hero down here because you literally give your life to God. But that is emotionally manipulative and that is wrong in every way. That is exploitation, pure and simple.
2: I mean, it. it's a cycle. So you give to the church and therefore you don't have enough left to take care of yourself. So you pray, believing that God will do a miracle. And – What I've learned as an adult is that when most of us get into a rough situation financially, we find a way to pull through. Like normal people cut some corners or sell something or your parents help you out or you pull some overtime or someone gives you some money. But when like that's what everybody does when they get in a financial rough spot, it's very few people that are unfortunate enough or have, you know, enough people are discriminated against or, you know, other bad things happen to them that actually end up in a financial situation that there's no getting out of. Most of us just figure something out and get by and hopefully get into a better financial place. Hopefully we get a better job or something. But when this happens to someone in the IFB, they do the same thing that the rest of us do cut corners or sell something or somebody helps you out or whatever but they believe that god has done a miracle for them and then they get to brag to the church about how god did a miracle how you had no food for your children but god provided like if you've ever been dirt poor and not IFB you understand that this is just what happens like you just you 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 call the electric company and you get a, a month long grace period and in that month you do a crap ton of overtime and you sell some shit on eBay and you're fine. Like, you figure it out and things get better for a while and then either they get bad again or you find a way to pull yourself out of the hole. Like, this is just what people do who have been poor. But in the IFB, it was God taking care of you and it was like this goosebumpy magical thing that happened. And that's your confirmation bias because like the... The positive brain chemicals from God magically stepping in are so powerful that it gives you the confirmation bias that you need to continue living on the bleeding edge financially to continue giving more than you are able because you are convinced that every time you wobble away from the edge of financial disaster for yourself and your 40-11 kids, that God has personally saved you, that God has personally blessed you, and that this is proof that God condones and supports your lifestyle that you're living.
0: And this idea of a miracle coming through or, you know, this idea of God providing for you, this is the very idea that Tom Kimmel exploited to great effect when he stole all of these people's money.
2: I mean, I'd say that he exploited this idea and then it exploited him right back because you're right that these people were expecting this concept that God takes care of people financially to come through, to make them money on their investments. And these people did believe that since their pastor recommended this investment, it couldn't possibly go wrong. The other side of it is, though, that Tom Campbell probably thought the same thing. I think he thought that God would come through and turn everything around and And make his Ponzi scheme financially solvent and legal and legitimate again. I think that there is every chance in the world that he actually bought his own bullshit, at least to a degree. I think he thought that there was a miracle in store for his business scheme that would put him back on top, make the company financially legitimate, and that he would be able to gloss it all over in the books and that no one would ever know. Hmm. That's just my opinion, but I really think that's what happened to you.
0: I mean, I could see it, though.
2: But, of course, he was wrong. So, you know, he exploited the system, and it did exploit him right back real hard. Uh, in 2013, Kimmel was indicted with just uh, a few days, within just a few days of when Scott was. I don't think the college as a whole was aware of it. I know that I had heard... I know I heard stuff like I heard rumors and I would see Kimmel at church and be like, isn't there some stuff going around about him? But there, I don't think there was a college wide announcement like there was for Scott, the one that we played on the show back way back when. Um, anyone who was at Hiles Anderson with me in 2013, I know we have several listeners now who were at HAC at the same time as I was. Uh, tell me if I'm wrong. I'm pretty sure there wasn't an announcement, and I'm pretty sure I would see him at church and be like, are you supposed to be here or are you supposed to be in jail? Um, in 2014, Kimmel was sentenced to 22 years in prison and told to repay over $16 million. Much of that was to his own family members, to First Baptist Church of Hammond members, to Hyles Anderson College staff. Um, if you read through the court documents, you can see several prominent First Baptist Church of Hammond families that he stiffed, some for quite large amounts of money. Several families have sued the church because the church gave him an office and gave him a title, and they felt that they were misled or pressured into investing with him. I think those lawsuits are still active and not uh, – they haven't come to a conclusion yet. In one case, there was a disabled man, Bill Boyd, and his wife, Cricket, who gave Kimmel nearly all of their life savings, and this life savings was like this – was, this was all the money they would ever have because – Bill needed, like, round-the-clock care, and Cricket was his caregiver. So, like, they have this amount of money, and it's got to last for the rest of your life. Sorry, that's all you have. Camel lost several hundred thousand dollars of theirs. And uh, Bill has now passed away, but his widow had lost all the money that she needed to pay off his medical expenses. And apparently she's still making payments on his burial. Yeah yeah that's terrible
0: oh man exploiting a disabled man like like oh i I don't know what else to say Mm.
2: yeah that's that's a very depressing story um
0: that's a terrible story
2: i think there's been a lot of of a depressing it stuff in this one um so if it's good with you can I end this one on a word of encouragement for listen- listeners who also grew up IFB?
0: Yeah, go for it.
2: Okay, great. Um, I've been in preaching mode like half of this podcast anyway, so I'll, I'll do that. I, what I wanted to say to people who also grew up IFB is that a lot of people our age struggle with financial literacy, whether or not they were raised in a cult. A lot of people our age were never educated on finances the way they should have been. Many people our age get over their head with credit cards or make bad financial calls uh, or buy the wrong house. (laughs) And it's not uncommon for people to have some financial rebuilding to do in their late 20s or early 30s. For those of us who were raised IFB, it can be really common to have no credit because credit cards were so demonized. It can be common to have just not started a career until later in life. Like, I know that applies to me. Um, I would be in a much better place if I had graduated with a real degree. I could have had a master's degree and still started a career four whole years ago instead of still being in college now. Like, now I'm going to have to go to college with a baby. Uh I just wanted to encourage those of you who were financially abused by the IFB that this is a very real form of abuse. This is not your fault. It does not make you a bad person. If you have a bad credit score because you grew up IFB, it is not your fault. And it has nothing to do with you being a bad or a good person. You are capable of learning better and doing better and building a good future for yourself financially financially. There are people who will give you legitimate real advice and it is possible for you to get yourself into a a good place financially. It is possible to recover from financial abuse. And also, if you are based IFB and you were told that it's never okay to spend any money on luxuries or things that make you feel good, um, that is bullshit. Spend some money on yourself once in a while when you can do it. It is good for you to remind yourself that it is sometimes worth it Spend money on fun things, even if it's $10 on a bath bomb and a candy bar, not talking to myself at all. Um, no, it, it within reason, um, remember to do that because you were probably told by the IFB that you shouldn't, and that's BS.
0: Yeah. And on that, I think it's time to end this episode. Uh, we want to thank our listeners for, uh, tuning in every week and being so loyal to us. Um,
2: Oh no! You use the word loyalty. (laughs) Uh, Yeah,
0: loyal, not loyal to us to the point that you would literally uh, give us all of your money for a Ponzi scheme. Um, But we 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 really do appreciate your support. Um, Yeah, would it be bad for me to ask for money for our Patreon (laughs) right
2: now? (laughs) I was going to say if you would if you would like to uh, if you would like to give us money on Patreon,
0: no pressure.
2: The if you are able to, the rewards that you get are extended episodes where we cuss a lot more uh, and also you get to support the two of us doing doing journalism and doing investigation and uh, you doing journalism, you, me
0: <laughs> making fun of stuff. I'm yeah.
2: bringing you bringing you the content that is hopefully enjoyable and um hopefully brightens your day and maybe helps you heal or helps you understand things.
0: Yeah, no pressure. We are not telling anybody <laughs> that they that they need to do that. We are not asking for 10% of your money or any no. percent we, of we your We appreciate no.
2: those Absolutely who are not. able to. Yeah. And we love everybody just the same. It's a ni-
0: it's a nice gesture. We like it, but no pressure. Uh yeah. Uh you can uh but yeah, you uh, anyway, we want to thank thank our listeners for listening to us um and supporting our show and you know being so great at spreading the uh, I almost said spreading the gospel. Ugh. No, at, at, uh, at recommending the show to your friends and family, we really do appreciate it. Um, because you know, we've been getting more and more and more listeners. Um, and that's been a lot of fun for us and really enjoyable for us. Um, yeah, if you, uh, you can follow the show on social media, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at leaving Eden podcast and on Twitter at leaving Eden pod and on TikTok as well at leaving Eden podcast. Uh, sadie do you want to plug your social media
2: uh yeah you can follow me on instagram at sadie carpenter music on twitter at hell Yeah sadie or on tiktok at sadie carpenter one yeah my clubhouse is also hell Yeah sadie
0: yeah she never uses it i don't think she's logged in yet
2: i am logged in okay i'm going to learn how to use it
0: it's it's a lot of fun (laughs) wait okay see uh, i'm on cl- uh, all of my my social media my uh, facebook instagram twitter and clubhouse are at g-a-v-r-i-e-l-h-a-c-o-h-e-n if you follow me on clubhouse i'm on there quite a bit so you can like just follow me and talk to me about stuff if you want to talk to me for whatever reason you might want to talk to me um yeah uh and until next time uh this has been the Leaving eden podcast we hope you have a nice day Bye-bye.